0: Hey there! Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 22. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend?
1: I am recharging after the World Cup round of 16. I've taken a couple of days off from my day job, as it were, on the Levitard show. And uh, I'm I'm trying to get some rest and, and get fired up for these quarterfinals because there are some tasty matchups on offer here.
0: Yeah, just truly heavyweight matchups coming. We're going to talk about each one of them. I am very excited. And I took some time off myself. We, we had two days here without games after 17 straight days of games. And my body, I think, told me, even after the U.S. went out, dude, you are not sleeping enough. <laughs> and it rebelled on me, and so I've had a case of bronchitis this week. I've been to the medical clinic at the media center twice now, including today. I'm feeling better today. I basically canceled everything on this Thursday that I had and napped, and and I'm doing slightly better. That you can probably tell in my voice that I'm not at a, at a hundred percent here. Hopefully, I will not cough uh, during this podcast. I'm coughing a lot. <laughs> Everyone's coughing here. In like This is by no means limited to me. Like So many journalists have uh, got a crazy cough. It sounds like a death rattle sometimes. Um, the only thing that's surprising to me actually is there isn't that much COVID here. I thought there might be a real issue with that. Um, we're not re- really seeing COVID cases. We're just seeing a lot of general sickness, coughing, colds. And uh, I can't wait to be on the other side of what I have, but I I am going to be ready to go. I'm attending uh, on Friday the Argentina Netherlands quarterfinal. Very excited for that. And then I'm going to go to France England on Saturday and write off all of those things for grantwall.com. And we'll discuss them for the podcast as well. But before we get to each of these games in the quarters, let's talk Greg Burhalter. Let's talk US soccer. Let's talk what might be coming here. Um, We got a statement from U.S. Soccer yesterday because there were reports coming out from, I think it was like Jeff Carlisle at ESPN and and Doug McIntyre at Fox that uh, contract negotiations had started with U.S. Soccer and Greg Berhalter. The statement that came out yesterday, quote, this is from U.S. Soccer. As we always do after a major tournament, we are taking time to reflect. We will conduct a full review with everyone involved as we determine our next steps. We look forward to building off the performance in Qatar and preparing for the journey towards 2026. What's your sense of that? Anything?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's not there's not a ton there uh, in terms <laughs> of actual uh, substance, but I guess you know a full vote of confidence of we intend to extend our contract with Greg Berhalter. Could have been one of the messages, and that was not that. I think they are stuck in a bit of a purgatory, um, this national team program, because I'm not entirely sure that Greg Berhalter wants to stay around. I'm not in I, I think that in in sort of normal circumstances, US soccer would probably extend Greg Berhalter because I think that the current regime hired him. And I think that there's not a ton for me to suggest that it's worth getting rid of him unless you have that obvious replacement in place. I think if you look at the current managerial marketplace, that obvious replacement isn't exactly there. And so you're going to have to take a second. I don't think it'll exactly be what Spain did, which is fire Luis Enrique, promote their under-21s coach, and they know what they're doing three days after elimination. I think some fans wanted the U.S. to act with that sort of conviction, but I think the U.S. fan and perhaps even the Federation, is thinking very aspirational because you're heading towards a home World Cup. What can we do that is befitting of a home World Cup? And I think that's where the U.S. is finding some difficulties. I also don't even know, because Ernie Stewart has hired one manager, Greg Berhalter, what exactly the vision is. What what does the U.S. want to be come the next World Cup? And I think they have to, they have to answer those questions. But I think they're going to have to figure out how they sort of finesse what their ultimate plans are. Is it, do you completely extend Greg Berhalter for the next four years, to which I don't think that would would be met very positively by the fan base? Or do you start to look around? What degree do you allow Greg Berhalter to go looking for another job for himself? What level of job could he get? There's a lot of variables to figure out. And also, oh, by the way, they have like a game in a month and a half out of January camp. So... There's a lot to figure out between now and then, and I'm not entirely sure how this is going to go. I think the, the the vagueness of that statement would suggest that they don't entirely know either.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one because I know you and I have a slight disagreement here, so let's bring this up. Sure. You think that a majority of U.S. men's national team fans do not want Greg Berhalter to return. My take is that there is an angry minority that we certainly hear all the time on Twitter who have, a lot of them have these sort of conspiratorial theories about MLS and Greg Berhalter's hiring and all sorts of stuff that I, I just think it's not that big of a number of people. There's certainly some, but I don't think it's a majority of US fans in part because I think there are a lot more US fans these days. Um, what's the source of our disagreement? Why do you think it's a majority?
1: I think that it's a majority because number one, I, I don't think that there, there was ever that strong of a constituency for Greg Burhalter. He would be like, you know, If you if you sort of reference back to like the Democratic primaries, it would be like, uh, you know, Tim Ryan's candidate for presidency. Like he was never exactly like this figure that drew this enormous like there are very few people that I think would go to the wall for Greg Berhalter um, because he doesn't exactly come with a barrel full of charisma. He doesn't come with this unassailable resume. I think his resume Whenever people talk about it, and there was this thread that went around on Twitter yesterday of all the reasons why Greg Berhalter's choice was a ridiculous one and completely based on the fact that his brother was working in the Federation at the time, which I thought was a hatchet job and ridiculous. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think that like when when that hire happened and people were upset because of his relationship with his brother and because. He had never won anything on a meaningful level and had been sacked by Hammerby and didn't have an unassailable resume. I don't think there was a bunch of people going, oh, but here are all these reasons why the Greg Berhalter era is fundamental and he's going to lead the U.S. He's, he's not a visionary in that. He's just a good coach, in my view. I think he's a, he's a solid manager for the national team. And I think, as I've said on this podcast before, he has been perfectly adequate in this job. He has done his job. He's won major finals. He's beaten Mexico three times. He has gotten the U.S. to the knockout rounds of the World Cup, has them playing a more advanced style than they did before, has helped bring through a generation, has won recruiting battles. Like, I think his resume in charge of the national team is pretty good, but I, I don't think that the fans took that and were like, oh, wow, now we really love this guy. It's always like, it always felt like in the group stage when they played pretty well against Wales but didn't win, Played pretty well against England, but didn't win. Played pretty well Played pretty well against Iran, but did win. Kind of disappointed against the Netherlands that, like, as the U.S. kept building and were getting through, that fans were sort of higher, hiding their ultimate distaste for, for for Berhalter. That, like, it was, oh, we have to begrudgingly give this man credit. And then once they lost to the Netherlands, he got outclassed by Louis van Gaal and, and the knives came out. And so I just don't think that, like, there's ever been this enormously positive feeling with Berhalter Much, much in the way that there was for Jürgen Klinsmann, who actually thought, who actually think, uh, deserved way more criticism than he got during his time, because Jürgen Klinsmann represented something. He represented a European coming in from a successful national team, and he led through a generation. Was meant to bring in this sort of rebelling against U.S. soccer ideas that a lot of fans thought were wrong, and push players to go to Europe, and 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 did all these things that uh, you know, in theory were what US fans wanted. He represented something, a bigger thing than an American can provide. I think there's a lot of fans that do, don't think an American should be coaching this national team because we're not good enough from a tactically from a uh you know acumen standpoint to match wits with the very best in the world. We need some help from from elsewhere. Like I think that Jurgen represented something in a way that Greg Berhalter just does not. And so I don't think that there's this enormously positive feeling. So I think the most you'll get out of a fan is like Yeah, I think Berhalter's done a fine job. I'd be fine if he stayed, and I'd be fine if he didn't. I don't think there's this sort of overwhelming support for this man.
0: Yeah, I mean, this whole discussion ends if Greg Berhalter decides he just doesn't want the job, which could be what what ends up happening. There are reports out there that uh, he's interested in in looking at some European club opportunities. And, you know, there might be some interest out there. I think, based on my interactions with foreign media here, uh, Berhalter got more positive response during this World Cup from people outside the United States than inside the United States. Um, I guess I would look at it this way though, is I don't, I, I still feel like knowing all the, the people involved here that the chances are that Greg Burhalter will remain the U.S. men's national team coach. That's based on what I know about the people who are his bosses who hired him Uh, It's based on what's happened in the past with U.S. coaches who have gotten to the round of 16 and gone out or gotten, in Bruce Arena's case, to the 2002 quarterfinals. Uh, They tend to be extended. Now, Jürgen Klinsmann was a separate issue because he extended his contract before the World Cup in 2014. And that just still floors me. Um, And so, like, Greg Berhalter is not in that situation, but I won't be surprised if he continues as the U.S. coach. Um, I just I just don't know. And sometimes it's good as a journalist to say, I don't know, because there's a real uncertainty here right now. But if Greg Berhalter does continue as the U.S. coach, I think it would be probably a four-year contract. There's not going to, like, that's what he would want. Um, and there's not going to be any on-the-line moments in the next four years. I don't think Gold Cup rises to that. Um, there continues to be talk a home, about- Do you
1: think a home Copa America would?
0: Maybe. Maybe. Um, and there might be a home Copa America, by the way, from whispers around here. Um, that would be awesome. Um, and it certainly seems likely the US will play in the Copa America wherever it takes place. But- um, have, have I talked about this on on here yet? That like the thinking is that the South Americans are much more willing to do business about a Copa America in the U.S. Again, now that the four country World Cup bid for 2030 from South America—Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, Chile—they need votes, and so they want Caribbean votes, and so they're like, "Hey, what can we do to get Caribbean votes? Uh, maybe we can involve <laughs> those teams in the Copa America." Um, so that's what's being discussed. Uh, it seems like, from what I'm hearing, U.S. soccer actually hasn't really been involved in those conversations yet. That it's mostly um, Concacaf, uh, and uh, which makes sense if you're thinking about it. Like U.S. soccer is basically like we're open for business, but they haven't like gotten in deep on this yet. And the question would be, you know, what sort of financial deal will be in place with CONMEBOL? Because CONMEBOL is going to want a certain share of money. And they I think they kind of feel like they got fleeced by the U.S. in 2016. And that's what led to really? some of the... Like U.S. soccer made so much money out of the 2016 Copa America. And so like, the U.S. organizes tournaments that make a, a shitload of money. And so even if they haven't always had a great relationship with people like common ball or currently U.S. soccer has a bad relationship with FIFA, FIFA's like, we see dollar signs in the U.S. We know that World Cup in 26 <laughs> is going to make a ton of money. Um, and it makes for a bizarre relationship, but that's where we are. Um, in any case, you know, like I do wonder, the one difference is, so the people who hired Greg Berhalter are still in place, Ernie Stewart, but there are new people above Ernie Stewart who weren't there when Greg Berhalter was first hired. And I do bring this up because we've seen a couple of examples of, when Ernie Stewart wanted to do some things with hires. And I don't think I've put this out there before, but I know this is true. Like Jermaine Jones, recent guest of the podcast, has been a U16, is it U16? A uh, national team assistant coach. Um, and there was some people above Ernie Stewart who like said, we don't want Jermaine Jones as... A head coach of a youth national team for now. Let's give him a spot as an assistant and see how it goes. But that was a case where Ernie Stewart wanted to do something when it was overruled on the technical side. So Ernie Stewart does not have 100% control over coaching hires and decisions. So that's what I say when the US Soccer Board, the president, Cindy Parlocone, CEO, JT Batson, they're all going to have some influence here. On the Greg Burhalter decision. And that I don't know what that means. is that does that mean less likely that Burhalter gets extended? I don't know much about his like relationship with Cindy Parlow Cohn. He went to UNC. She went to UNC. I don't think she she's always said positive things publicly about Burhalter. But I do wonder about sort of the big picture looking ahead about what you're talking about, which is the u s. is hosting this World Cup, co-hosting it. And so how does that change the equation?
1: Right. And 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 what does this program want to be? Right. Again, I think I think that's a big question to answer. Are you trying to, in a quarterfinal game against France in 2026, outplay them? Like get the ball and go at France and try and attack? Like, are you trying to be what... People have talked about the national team dictating style for the American player for a while when it's sort of really the other way around, the American player and its development uh, abroad which I think Burhalter deserves credit for right Burhalter deserves credit for the fact that you know the American player has had some growth in Europe and you see a lot of players going abroad but not playing every week and yet still trusting those guys uh, to, to allow this program to take steps forward and if anything showcase to clubs that these players are sort of worth doing things with um, so again what you want to be stylistically and how important is it that for example? the coach is American, right? Like, do you do you value that the American national team is represented by an American and then sometimes a former a, a former player, which I think Greg Berhalter, I think, sometimes doesn't get enough credit for the fact that he's a former player in this national team and that means something. Um, but do do we think that idea that I mentioned earlier that we need to export are I, or import i i guess ideas uh to to really compete at the very highest level how high of a level and and th- that led me down a path of researching what the current crop of coaches in the in the World Cup knockout round uh, is because i do think it isn't it is somewhat instructive in we might overrate the the quality of coach that you can get for this level so i i, I went coach by coach one i think you start with gareth southgate who's the manager of england um who was in charge of the England under-21s after one spell in charge of Middlesbrough, all in the championship. He does not have a massive pedigree. Leonel Scaloni, the manager of Argentina, does not have a massive pedigree. Was, went from retirement to being an assistant at Sevilla under Jorge Sampaoli. Went with uh, Sampaoli to the Argentinian national team, was the caretaker, and now is the manager and has led them to a Copa America title. Louis Van Hal is by far the most credentialed uh, member of of the uh, of the. Uh, Cohort of managers left because he, you know, managed Bayern Munich and Barcelona and has done so much in the game. But he was also inactive for five years in between Manchester United and taking over the Dutch national team. Zlatko Dalic was, uh, you know, brought in late in the 2018 cycle to help them qualify. Was in charge of a club of the UAE for Croatia. Uh, Didier Deschamps uh, was. You know, fired after finishing uh, tenth in Ligue 1 uh, with Marseille before taking over as French national team manager. Fernando Santos has mostly built his pedigree managing in Greece before taking over in charge of the Portuguese national team. The Moroccan manager was hired very late in the day and was sort of the best that Moroccan domestic football had to offer. He's gotten them to a World Cup quarterfinal largely off of vibes. And then Cheech, the manager of Brazil. Um, was sort of, I think, the best that Brazilian club soccer had to offer at the time, was in charge of Corinthians and had won the Club World Cup and the Copa Libertadores and two league titles uh, in Brazil. But again, these are not exactly like, you know, the biggest names active in the game. Like, if you did a list right now of the 50 best coaches in the world, they might all be managing in club soccer right now. I don't th- I'm don't. i not sure that any of the current crop of World Cup coaches would even make that list. So again, How high are you shooting? What coach do you want that to be? And does it need to be foreign in order for this segment of the fan base to be happy? And ultimately, is this fan base ever going to be happy with its coach? Because they don't ever have as good of players on the day as the very best teams in the world.
0: No, I do think the U.S.'s sort of massive insecurity among its fans feeds into this. um, And this feeling, this need to be, I don't know, more European or respected by Europe or, or what have you. Um or it's that a we're great not good point.
1: enough. It's
0: a great point, though, that you make that how many coaches I, I always look at it in these terms, even like some of the biggest national team coaches in the world, what kind of club job would they get tomorrow? You know, how high up the list of clubs would they be able to go? And I don't think there's that many national team coaches in the world who could get a really good club job coming out of what they're doing internationally. Like, maybe, you know, Hansi Flick is going to be kept now by Germany. And he could, you know, having coached Bayern Munich to championships, probably get a pretty good job in Germany, I would think at the club level. Um, but, you know, like you look at these other coaches and I do get the the vibe from top club coaches. They sort of look down on international coaches at this point. I mean, there's not like total, like they respect maybe some of these guys, but they respect them for what they've achieved as club coaches, not as national team coaches. So, you know, for example, Luis Enrique today is out for, in Spain. And, you know, like, I'm curious to think, to know, like, is Luis Enrique someone the U.S. should pursue? Like, he's, he's a pretty good coach, I think. But I don't know if necessarily I'd want him for the U.S. national team.
1: Yeah, I think his results with the Spain national team have certainly underachieved. Spanish national team fans are not huge fans. But... That, like, in terms of pedigree, that might, that's probably as high as you can go in terms of like what he's done. A former manager at Barcelona, what he did in his playing days, manager at Spain. Like, I think that's the sort of thing. But again, like, you're not going to get a successful national team manager off of success because a successful national team manager off of, you know, like, recently successful would go do something else. Like, you know, if Gareth Southgate manages England to the World Cup. He would probably just stay as manager of England or go manage in the Premier League. like and look, the u s. job has attracted oddly good candidates in the past. Like if you go back to the last cycle, the u s. didn't even properly take a look at Tata Martino, who obviously did not do a good enough job with Mexico, and that probably cost him his chance to 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 manage the u s now. Um, but also Julian Loteggi, that's a that's an oddly good candidate to be interested in the u s. job. So I was the one who broke
0: I, that, by the way,
1: yes. And uh, and it is odd that they didn't talk to him at the time, which I think goes into some of the Berhalter hate. And it's odd that he was interested in the first place because Julian Lopetegui then went on to be the manager of Sevilla. He could always get another good job in Spain, but he was he was interested in for some reason in managing the U.S. There's something that's attractive about this position. So I do think getting back to our overall point, it would be ridiculous for Ernie Stewart to not, to not least kick the tires on what's out there. Like what what kind of off the wall candidate like could you get Luis Enrique to be interested? Could you get someone we're not even thinking about to be interested because it's the US job before a home World Cup.
0: And here's where I am on all of this. I want this to happen. Even if you end up hiring extending Greg Berhalter, I want the US to go through a, a proper interview process for this job that did not take place when Greg Berhalter was hired. The column I wrote when Greg Berhalter was hired was, Greg Berhalter might be the right choice, but the process that led to this was terrible and actually made it harder on Berhalter once he got the job, and I think that's proven to be true because everyone remembers the process in which basically nobody else was even interviewed and Greg Berhalter was the only candidate and he didn't have enough on his resume that was good enough to make him the only candidate for the job. So what I would like to see is a proper interview process of different candidates, including Greg Burhalter, if he's interested in the job. And at the end of that proper interview process, U.S. soccer has identified people who are interested in the job, gone about that to find out who's actually, does Luis, Luis Enrique want this job? Let's talk to him. Does anyone else of that stature want this job? Let's talk to them. Let's go through that. And, you know, maybe Greg Berhalter has a problem with that because he feels like from an ego perspective, he shouldn't have to go through an interview process after what he's done the last three years. And if that's the case, just be like, okay, sorry, you know, we're going to go through a proper interview process. U.S. soccer should be the ones in control of this, the ones in power. And if you go through that whole process and Greg Berhalter's the guy and you make that offer, great. But like, make the process right this time. And I think that's something that Cindy Parlow Cone and the U.S. Soccer Board could insist on, and and I would like that actually, um, and I think fans would like that too.
1: Right, and because ultimately it would allow you the chance to, uh, you know, really explore some of the very best guys. The other question I would have is is how long do you have to? How long do you have to make this decision? Do do you allow yourself the chance until the end of the club season, or you know, a few months? When you're ultimately going to be playing friendlies or nations league games and are not fundamental over the course of these next few months, like how how long do you have to make this decision? Because I think if you're going on the current crop, you'd be looking at co- club coaches who are out of the game or international coaches who had just left their position. But again, like we talk about someone like Jesse Marsh, who I think a lot of fans I think would probably get behind. He's not available now. I saw him, you know, video of him today leading a session in Dubai uh of you know his players and I they were you know in Spain. getting oh they're in Spain, I'm sorry. It looked it looked warm wherever they were. So <laughs> I, I I just assume that everyone's in Dubai right now. Uh but it, but uh either way, like, you know, leading a session and he is obviously 100% invested in staying in the Premier League with Leeds, maybe even in continuing his club career at European level. But if it doesn't go well, Are you there to pick up the pieces? And how long do you give that? Do you wait until the end of the season? Like How how long are you waiting for someone who could be a dream candidate and fans would get behind? Is Jesse Marsh even the right person for the job? Because as much as I like his style and I like the fact that he's sort of right now the thought leader of American soccer coaches... I don't know if this style is well suited to the international game in terms of like leading a, a sort of complex press and and the defensive idea, principles and all that stuff. And yes, you will have time to insert them over the next four years, but is that is that the right thing for what you want to do? And that and I can understand, you know, the the U.S. hierarchy maybe not favoring that. So how long do you give yourself? And like do you have to make a decision by the end of the month because you have some some uh, friendlies in January and you don't want to have Greg Berhalter either not coaching on a contract or have the Dave Sarakin experience again of just having an interim running those running those camps, uh, which is a possibility. You have someone like Mikey Varis who ran the, the the U-20 program. Maybe you have him coach in January or something like that if you insist that Berhalter's not coming back. But that would also require a decision. We're not bringing Berhalter back, right? Like, I think... it. No, because yeah, it would be weird. It would, it would be weird if he, if he was
0: gone yes. and then came back. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Like, these, yeah. these games are not important in the first no, part not. of 2023. And so, like, I do find something appealing in maybe waiting until the end of this club season. Like, in the sense of, like, Jesse Marsh, I don't think, is going to choose to lead Leeds United to become the U.S. coach in early, early twenty three. But there's also a chance Jesse Marsh is not the coach of Leeds United by the end of this season. In fact, that's what a lot of people thought was going to happen a month or two ago. I don't have any inside information there. I think actually Jesse has more support from Leeds, his bosses, than um, has been reported. But he also knows if they're in a relegation battle, if they end up in a relegation battle, he's going to be fighting for his job. And if he weren't the Leeds United coach, I think he'd want the US job in a heartbeat. I really do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's where it gets weird, right? I mean, like, how do you even handle the timeline of the U.S. job? And it, it, I just don't think it should be predicated on having someone set for games that mean basically nothing in early 23.
1: And, yeah, the other two that you have are uh, in March of 2023, they have a games against Granada and against El Salvador in the CONCACAF Nations League. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, you know, like it. They don't, they don't mean anything right now, but, you know, there are competitive games that in theory you'd want to coach in place for, or maybe it doesn't matter. You can beat Granada away and El Salvador at home uh, without any problem, no matter who the coach is. So again, it, it's sort of like, and, and I've experienced this, like for example, like with my college football team before, where it's like they go searching for a coach and they like with the, the NFL team here in Miami, too, we're like they go searching for a coach and they decide, well, we want one person or we want to bring back the person that we have. But we don't want to not get our a target and lose the guy that we currently have. And I can understand like maybe like right now, the U.S. Soccer Federation is shooting for the stars, some candidate we haven't even thought of. And if they don't get him, then we just extend Burhalter uh like the, like it's either option A or option B it's not a global search of every candidate we interview people for 6 months or whatever um it's A or B and the likelihood is to go with B because we can't get A so i think that's probably where they are and i i don't think i just don't think the fan base will be enthused by that like i don't think that if greg burilter is on the touchline in 2026 there would be a great deal of confidence uh in his abilities at that world cup as unfounded as i think that hypothesis is because I think he has indeed led this U.S. program forward. They do play better soccer. They are better. And he has not inhibited the progress of any American player that we have hope for. I would say bar Ricardo Pepe. And you could argue that Pepe might have done some of that on, on his own accord by transferring to Germany and not working out. And by only really scoring goals in Holland in the month before the World Cup as his case to be on the team. But you can't entirely lay that at Greg Berhalter's feet. Otherwise, every U.S. player that they've either recruited or we've been excited about played well for the national team at this World Cup. Like I don't, he has not inhibited their growth. I think in any way, if anything, I think he's led some growth forward. Could another coach maybe do more? Maybe any any like you can you can have that hypothetical about any coach until someone wins the World Cup. But I don't think this is a squad that can win the World Cup right now.
0: There's an interesting uh, piece by John Miller on the athletic in the last couple of days, looking at data metrics for the U S during this world cup and comparing them to other teams in this tournament, but also to previous U S teams in previous world cups, what he's showing or trying to show is that he actually thinks it shows that Greg Berhalter has changed this U S team in a positive way, um, in terms of, uh, field tilt, like what percentage of, uh, getting the ball into the attacking third of both teams in a game. Are you getting, uh, the U S is pretty high on that. A couple other metrics that compared well to, uh, other teams in this world cup and to previous U S teams. Um, the one thing that is, if you read the story that he doesn't really address is he, he does, it shows all of his work is that Canada actually was not very different from the U S in a lot of these metrics during this world cup. And Canada was the second team eliminated. In this World Cup, <laughs> and so these the metrics can only go so far. I mean, Germany had really good expected goals difference, and they went out in the group stage. And I know it's small sample size and everything, but like that was my only question. I'm sure Ernie Stewart's mm-hmm. got his own metrics. So let's talk about these four quarterfinals a little bit. Um, they're very good matchups, and you know the only one of the eight teams left that was unexpected was Morocco, which upset Spain on the last day of the round of 16. But otherwise, all seven of the rest of these teams were the favorites in the first stage of elimination rounds. So that has created these big-time matchups. First one is Croatia-Brazil. And I haven't found a single person who thinks Croatia is going to win this game. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I think that I think that's a bit harsh. Um, the 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 one thing that I'm sort of I'm I'm left thinking about now Brazil were amazing in that first half. Going forward, it can very easily make the argument that they down tools in the second half and right. they weren't as good. But South Korea, I would say, had four or five really good chances in that game. And now you have to convert all of them to be in the game, and they they left themselves too exposed. But it wasn't a sensational defensive performance from Brazil. South Korea had their moments in the game, and Allison made some really good saves. For as much as Richarlison and Neymar and Vinny Junior got a bunch of credit, Allison was one of the top performers in that game. And you still have Allison. And I, I wonder sometimes if like goalkeeping gets it, like we'll say like you know even like the U.S. in 2014 against Belgium. Well, they got slaughtered, except, well, they had Tim Howard. Well, I mean, well, Tim Howard is one of the 11 players. Like, in theory, he can play well, and and that can still mean something. But Allison was really good in that game. He's a tough goalkeeper to beat. But I wonder if there are areas, particularly in the way that Brazil set up, which is they look like a Pep Guardiola team in the way that they bring a fullback into the midfield. In the last game, it was Danilo who played alongside Casemiro, and they tuck in Eder Militao from right back into the in, into a back three with Marquinhos and Thiago Silva. And you're playing three defenders, Danilo next to Casemiro as two midfielders and five attackers. And that's a very attacking way to set up in a game. And you have Paqueta, Neymar, Richarlison, Vini Jr., uh, Rafinha all lined up in that attack can be vulnerable, right? In theory, the d- the shape is designed to snuff out counters, but it's a lot of guys committed into the attack. And so can Croatia find their way through it? I think the one thing that leads me to not say that this will be a close game is that they just don't have enough teeth up front. Perisic has been very good at this tournament, but their striking options just don't give enough. And they have not found the obvious replacement for Mario Mandzukic, who I think is kind of an underrated part of this era of Croatia and so I think Brazil are going to win and probably win by two goals, but I I don't think that... I think you can make a case for why this will be really difficult. Croatia takes some beating, and there are spaces to exploit against Brazil, I think, that they showed in the last match.
0: I will say this, that Brazil had better win by a couple goals because you don't want to give Croatia the chance to send it to penalties, to equalize, as Japan did, because they're incredible on penalties. I I think they... Croatia... Has not advanced even when they got to the final in 2018, like without going to penalties. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the last time they advanced in the knockout rounds in non-penalties in the World Cup was like 1998. Um, so, I have a ton of respect for what they've done. It is a tiny country. I, and I don't think we talk about this enough. How small Croatia is, and how much they punched above their weight on in global football. I mean, they got to the semis in '98. They got to the final. In 2018, they're back in the quarterfinals this year with a fairly old group, to be honest. And that's something. Uh, that's something to be really admired. I think it's a tough draw for them to get Brazil. And this Brazil is firing on all cylinders from an attacking perspective. And some of the most fun moments I've had watching this tournament have been Brazil on the attack. I think Richarlison has had the two best goals in the tournament. Um and has become my new favorite player from Brazil. I also like the fact that he's just not a right-wing lunatic, uh, like so many of the (laughs) players on that team, including (laughs) Neymar, um, and actually speaks to poor people in Brazil, which he used to be one of. Um, And I love the moments, the human moments he's had, Richarlison, with people like Ronaldo, OG Ronaldo, who has his own little like... Post game place where the players go after, like right afterward, they're still in their uniforms, and he does these interviews. Yeah. It's like the the Ronaldo mix zone. I don't know what he worked out <laughs> with FIFA yeah. to be able to do this, but like it's <laughs> so cool to see players like Ratcharleson get emotional to be in the same room with Ronaldo and tell him how much of an impact he's had on them and is having on on them right now. Like Ratcharleson said, like seeing. Ronaldo in the stands and Kaká and Rivaldo and Roberto Carlos and Cafu cheering them on is like really special to them. I've really enjoyed watching the alums like that group. And then there's an Argentina group with Badi Stuta and Javier Zanetti and a few other guys, Juan Pablo Serene, uh, watching the Argentina games and getting excited. And it, it's almost like this kid-like joy. And it's it's awesome. I love it.
1: Yeah, I th- I lo- love the connection with the past, and I think it maybe they would have done it anyway. But I think it's part of what the manager Cheech, has gotten so right at this World Cup. Like I think he has completely gotten his head around what international management is. And it was funny because I was researching, um, I was re- researching him for sort of this argument that we were talking about with Berhalter earlier today. And it was interesting when he was, when he was first appointed, like there was this idea that maybe he wasn't going to be the attacking manager that Brazil fans wanted, but that he was going to be effective. And he has gotten the style right. He's gotten like m- managing these personalities, right? That's a federation as well. The CBF that is not exactly the most uh, well-regarded federation. As a matter of fact, yeah, at the time of his appointment, it was cited that he and Pele wanted to start a new federation that they basically like wanted to scrap the current one and start again because of how, uh, you know, mismanaged Brazilian football was. And yet, he has gotten every political dynamic right, every personality dynamic right, is on the right side of Neymar, is on the right side of Thiago Silva, which was not the case under Dunga before him. There's a lot to international management that is man management, that is personality, that is getting the the atmosphere right. And I think him and Gareth Southgate represent getting a lot of that stuff right. And. I, it's one of the things that make me so confident in Brazil is how well managed they are, not from a tactical standpoint, but from a getting everything in the camp, right. Standpoint.
0: Speaking of Chichi, like what if you want, what would he be interested in coaching the U S that would be an interesting thing to find out. Cause I, I think this is his last go around with
1: Brazil. You think so? I, 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 it feels like one where it's like, why, why wouldn't we just keep going? Like he's sort of, he's yeah. got it.
0: I think he's even said this is probably his last go around. Yeah, but, no, like, maybe. It, I mean,
1: as an he, I think as an international manager, he is immensely valuable. If you were Portugal, yeah. I, it would be my first call after the World Cup if they don't if they don't win it all themselves. Um, honestly, I'd kind of be curious if he if he'd be interested in a big European club job. If it's go managing one of the one of the giants in Portugal, Benfica, Porto, or Sporting, or right. or even at a higher level than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, cer- certainly you make the call and say, hey. Chichi, you want, you, you want to come over? I, I know there's a I huge hope, language barrier, but let's figure this out. I hope those calls are being made, US soccer. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um Netherlands, Argentina, I'll be at this game, even though I have this sinking feeling it's going to be a nil-nil going to penalties.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure that this is like a stylistically great game uh, on offer because I think these are two teams that, Like to have a lot of the ball, but don't do a ton with it when they have it. Um, I thought that in the Australia game, they did very well late. But you'd like to see the level of creativity they showed after they went 2-1 down for the lion's share of the match. Again, I I always wonder how Argentina deals with pressure. Feels like they're getting better at it at this tournament, and they've gotten better at it at the last couple years. But, I mean, every game is... I mean, I think... They will fancy themselves in this game. They they will think that they are the favorites. They will think that they are better than the Netherlands. But I think Louis Van Gaal over time, and he, and he's he talked about this after the U.S. game. You know, he was kind of known as being one of the you know bearers of uh, standard bearers of total football. And he said that yeah, there are still elements of the 3 four three three that I believe in and Dutch football. But I've also learned over time some differences between you know how I was then and how I am now. And there are defensive things and things you negate about your opponent that are also very important. And so I wonder how both teams said about this game. If I could like do like a prop bet, I would say like nil-nil after 15 minutes is nailed on. I would be floored if there was an early goal in this game. Um, But I think that that this game will have a lot of drama in it. Like you said, it might not be filled with free-flowing football and chances, but I feel like every kick of this game is going to be supremely weighty.
0: There's an interesting point made, I don't remember who said it, that Louis van Gaal as an international manager is much more conservative than Louis van Gaal as a club manager. If Mm -hmm. you just look at his record over the years and what the Dutch did at the 2014 World Cup where they did get to the semifinals. Um, And that's interesting. It sort of tracks with what we've seen from the Netherlands in this tournament, including against the US. I mean, they're a tough team to play against. but it's not traditional dutch expansive wide open football and you know it's it's practical and they certainly have ways to strike and beat you but i don't think that argentina is going to get you know going to do the things that the us did that allowed goals to be scored so easily by unmarked dutch players in the box i don't see that happening with argentina but i'm 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 hot and cold on Argentina. I think they've gotten better in the tournament. They're still overly reliant on Messi, who can still win games with what he does. But as the opponents get harder, it's going to be harder for him to do that on his own. Um, I think it's a flawed Argentina team, but they're still the team I picked before the tournament to win it. Um, And I think this is going to be a very tense game. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I and, and that and that sort of it has been Argentina's theme of this World Cup is that they don't they don't do this terribly easy. You're right though. I think I was expecting more of the supporting cast. I think Lautaro Martinez is sort of He's woeful form. He's been bad. Like his woeful form has hurt. Di Maria getting injured. You can't say it's too surprising. He's older. Um, but again, le- leaves you without a wing player that can bring some dynamism. Rodrigo De Paul, I I think has been pretty poor at this world cup. Like the fullbacks haven't added a ton and you start going through the team and it's like Enzo Fernandez has done his job in midfield and Julian Alvarez has been decent up front. Yeah. But other than that, that's fair. Um, but I, I, I do think that like, I mean, you go back to the Australia game, you know, it's an utter shocker from Matt Ryan for the second, and then the first is just a moment of messy quality. It's funny because if you go back and watch that goal, it, he sort of plays a one-two with Nicolas Altamendi, but it's not because Altamendi r- had designs of returning the ball. It's because his first touch was so heavy that <laughs> it just sort of bounced in front of Messi and he smacked it in the corner. Like it's It wasn't this moment of brilliant play, um, but I think... A lot of it will come down to Messi, and he can shoulder it. Like I think he's sort of comfortable enough in this team and comfortable enough as a personality. I really enjoyed sort of seeing that personality come to the fore in a Twitch stream he did with Kunaguero. Uh, that was really fun to watch. Um, and I, I think he's comfortable, and he's ready to put on a performance that is befitting of the stage
0: i like Argentina to advance on penalties after a nil-nil. <laughs> um, I, I am very excited about an Argentina-Brazil semifinal matchup, which probably means it won't happen. Um, but I'm going to pick them. Uh, next one, Morocco-Portugal. Intriguing matchup here and the chance for the first African team in history to get to the semifinals of the World Cup. I think Morocco's got a shot. I really do.
1: Yes, uh, I, I do think that what we saw from Portugal in the last game would lead me to think that Portugal should be clear favorites. And the way that they played without Cristiano Ronaldo was sort of impressive enough that. And and I saw it was funny. I was I spent a a, a lot of time sort of going through the the World Cup internet yesterday. And I saw this guy making this point that uh, Portugal, you know, yes, Ronaldo came out of the lineup, but they also only played one defensive midfielder. In the game against Switzerland and that's the reason why it wasn't because of Ronaldo but you can make the decision to put another playmaker on the field because you don't have to cover for Ronaldo who doesn't do any running and so I do think if they go out with the same lineup as they did against Switzerland I just think that they have enough to get a goal the one thing that scares me about this Moroccan team is that they sort of thrive in moments like there are moments where it's like oh Sofian Buffal has this amazing moment to skill and creates a chance on the byline. Hakim Ziyech can be a real threat from set pieces and in the run of play as well. They brought on that guy, uh, I, I forget his name, late on in that game, who had three clear chances in extra time and did nothing with them. Um, I love that like guy. They, <laughs> Yeah, what a, what a, what a, what a strange tank. character. Right, a total unit who had no composure in front of goal whatsoever, but they created three clear chances in extra time, Morocco. So... You can see their way into the game. There, it's incredibly emotional team. You talk about getting international management right from an emotional standpoint. That manager has gotten the Moroccan team spot on. I saw, you know, somebody pointed out that Hakim Ziyech has probably run more and put in more defending at this World Cup than he will do in an entire club season for Chelsea. Like, and that's all you want is like players to thrive in this environment where it's like, this is everything. I'm getting. It's not like, oh, I'm playing for this organization I don't like, or this coach I don't like. It. It's this sort of intense sense of national pride, and you will do more for this shirt than you would do for anything. That's what we love about the World Cup, and I think it's perfectly embodied in Morocco, which is why you can't rule them out.
0: Walid Chidira is his name. Yes. And Chidira I, was my favorite player in that game because he came on, and he just had these chances, and then he just would, like... Not
1: do it. Um, Not Not even get a strike away for two of them.
0: Yeah. But I will say this. like It's always a fine line managing emotion, extreme emotion in a World Cup. Because I still think back in 2014, when Brazil was the host, they had too much emotion. And you had Thiago Silva... Being in tears for the penalty shootout early in the tournament, and when Neymar went out, it was all about emotion. That, it was that less national above.
1: anthem, that national anthem before the Germany victory or the Germany right. the seven one was like the most. Like I think everyone was in tears. Like they had completely lost their minds. Yeah, and like you can, it could either be like they're going to come firing out of the gates and score three early, or. What happened, which is they were five-nil down after 30 minutes.
0: And that's the case study now for having too much emotion in a yes. World Cup and, and having it hurt you. I think the Moroccans are just on the right side of it. They've had they have so much support here. And it's it's difficult to actually explain that, just how much having Moroccan fans everywhere here, how fun that is, but also I think it does have a positive impact on their team. And, you know, the idea that we're here at the first World Cup in an Arab country, and you have an Arab country getting to the quarterfinals, and it does feel like more than just about Morocco, and and that's something pretty cool to witness and, and sort of get a sense of. But it reminds me a little bit of when Ghana got to the quarterfinals in the South Africa World Cup in 2010, and there was this whole pan-Africa, everyone was rooting for Ghana until Luis Suarez ended their dream. Um, (laughs) and, And I think that that could help Morocco in this game against Portugal because in pure soccer terms, Portugal's probably the better team and they seem to have made a pretty important move in the last game to get beyond cristiano ronaldo
1: as much as man united did uh in in but, the season But will that stick but will that stick i guess is the question right <laughs> if it's nil nil after 70 minutes and they bring right. ronaldo on it's going to be all eyes on is he going to be the hero and if he is the hero i mean god forbid like they have to go right back to him right like you can't as much as i think he's a super sub like i think his current role is ideal it's perfect for him um it'll be hard to like for the manager to make the case to Ronaldo, hey, we think you should continue on the bench because I think he's gonna tell the manager to bleep off. Like I, no. I, I like I think now they're like in order for them to continue with this, they kind of have to win the thing and also win the thing while Ronaldo is on the bench. Like beat 2-0 up every time he comes into the game. So it's like we don't need you man.
0: You know what's ridiculous though about this is that Portugal getting to the quarterfinals is probably an accurate reflection of the talent they have. I don't think their talent on paper has them getting beyond the quarterfinals. And maybe they will, but like it, it's just, it would be weird to me if like they go out here and their coach gets any static because I think he's done the right things to get them to the quarterfinals. I don't know if Gonzalo Ramos is going to be a one-hit wonder who had a hat trick in his first international start, which happened to be at a World Cup, which is an amazing story. I don't know. Maybe he'll have a hat trick in this game and just be like this guy who breaks out at the World Cup. But there's there's not a huge sample size, so I don't know necessarily what to expect from him uh, in Portugal in this game. I'm going to go with Morocco, in part because it's a great story, but also because I think they've handled their execution of game plans. I thought that was perfect against Spain. The way they approached it, the way they executed it, the way they won on penalties quite easily. Um, And, you know, we'll see. I I don't think they need to be quite as drastic against Portugal because Portugal doesn't dominate possession quite like Spain does. But I still think Portugal's going to have the majority of possession and and Morocco's going to try and strike on the counter. But they've got real players who can strike.
1: Yeah, particularly Buffal and Ziyech. They're, They're no doubt the players to watch. You mentioned as well, like, you know Portugal. You know if they get any criticism, this is about their talent. I, I think this is a really talented team, and I think that they will view this as a pretty major disappointment if they don't beat Morocco. However, I will say this is only their third time to a World Cup quarterfinal. They finished third in 1966. They finished fourth in 2006. Every other time has either been not qualified or out in the group stage or round of 16. So Portugal are actually not a terribly tradition-rich country at the World Cup. Um, obviously, they have it, it, an enormous uh, background of bringing through players, and like they're a strong footballing nation. But their World Cup history is not exactly littered with brilliant success. As a matter of fact, they've been largely on a par with the U.S. this century until this World Cup. Like they're not that much better than the United States in in world football. I mean, y- yes, they won the Euros in 2016. That's a big deal. But at the World Cup, like they're not exactly this power. So. I, I do think that you're right. Like this is about expectations for them. Now, you, you would have expected to face Spain and that would have been a great game and you probably would have been the underdog and it's an Iberian derby and but now that you're here, let's go make a semifinal for the first time since two thousand six. Let's go do it. That that has to be their thinking.
0: I always think about the way Bruce Arena used to say Portugal when he this is around two thousand two in the US play. Portugal. Por- we're playing Portugal. <laughs> Portugal. Portugal. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I miss Bruce Arena's <laughs>
0: pronunciations. Um, let's talk about England-France, the final quarterfinal on Saturday. And is this one of those occasions when you could say you feel like whoever wins this game has a decent chance to win the World Cup?
1: I think if, if it were not for Brazil, I think you would definitely say that. But yeah, I think this feels like the biggest heavyweight battle of this round. And... I think that these are probably, I would say on the evidence of this World Cup, if you sort of filter out Portugal as having put together one amazing performance, I think these are the second and third best teams at this tournament. And so I think that Brazil's number one, France's number two, and England's number three. I absolutely rate this national team of England. I, I think that they, are, they don't get enough credit because of their past. And... Because people don't like it, it's funny. I, I have this theory that everyone is sort of like the manager of England is Gareth Southgate. Their second manager is eight hundred million people around the globe who follow the Premier League. Like like all these people that they they watch the league every week and they think that Gareth Southgate is getting this wrong and that secretly everyone kind of both roots for England and kind of roots against England. Like everyone has these very defined thoughts on England. And my thoughts are that this is a really good team. And if they were wearing Argentinian shirts or other shirts that we trusted more in major tournaments that we would really believe in them. And so, I think I said on on Tuesday after the round after the round of 16 ended that I was picking France slightly. I think I had the game ending in extra time, but over the course of the last couple of days, I really convinced myself that England are going to do this. Like I think oh, that wow. England England can beat France and yes, there's the Mbappe problem. And yes, France is absolutely loaded with talent. And you can certainly see them winning the game. They're favored to win the game. But I think that, like, I'm I'm a, I'm a believer in this English national team. And that what the progress that they've made at the last two major tournaments is they're just a normal national team now that lives up to the talent of its players. And I think the talent of its players are really good. And so I think England is going to do this. I actually think it's going to end in extra time. I think England's going to win in extra time over France.
0: Okay. I like the boldness. Um, I think France is going to win the game, and I think Mbappe is going to show up again like he has in games this tournament, and there's no player like Mbappe on either roster aside from him. And I love the fact that he senses the moment and really lives for these moments. And it's, it's pretty cool. Like World Cup games, you don't play that many games, each team, but you... It's it's such an opportunity to each game because so many people are watching and there's so much importance, so much in the way of stakes to define a career and the players who get it, who get it, who realize it, who then act on it. And has done that. And I think this is another game that he will. Um, not to say that England's a bad team. I think it's going to be a tight game. I think uh actually i hate what happened to raheem sterling to the the burglary at his home to cause him to leave the team i think actually phil foden's better right now than raheem sterling and it's given foden a chance to play more and i think that's a good thing for england at least on the field um and they've got a lot of weapons so i I think it's going to be a really good game i'm going to be really excited to be there for it and yet in the end, I think that extra little bit of quality that Mbappe has is going to make the difference.
1: And and that's a perfectly reasonable opinion. I think he's he's by far the best player on the field. I think that there are other there are English players that can be good on their day and, and be unplayable on their day, but Mbappe is the most consistently good player on the field. Uh by the way, good news ahead of this game is that Raheem Sterling will be returning uh to the England camp. Uh, so that so that is good news for them. Um the one thing that I would love to see from this game as a spectacle is an early goal because I think yeah, both teams, I think, will be naturally cautious and not want to give the game away. And if either team can get an early goal, I think this could game, this game could really spark to life because England, I think are there are, are at their most entertaining when they're chasing from behind. And I think the same of France. Um, and so I kind of hope that there's an early goal in this game to really get this game going. Um, because otherwise I think it it could be cautious. I wouldn't be surprised if it's nil-nil at halftime and then uh, there's some changes that come after. But uh, I am really, really looking forward to this game. I kind of want to clear my schedule and just sort of sit at home and watch this game and sort of give it my undivided attention because these are the sorts of occasions that we don't get very often that World Cups are for. Like, all right, let's see some of the giants of the game go against each other. And we're going to see that when these two teams meet.
0: Yeah, it's going to be great. Before we sign off, we are going to be coming out, listeners, uh, with a new episode on the night of each quarterfinal match day, so mm-hmm. two straight nights. Looking forward to that, and hopefully I'll have my voice back by then.
1: I mean, your voice has <laughs> sounded really good on this pod. It might sound bad to your ears, but in, in, in my headset, your voice sounds fantastic.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I have not coughed once. I don't know how I did that because I've been fighting them off, but... Uh, <laughs> Very good discussion, Chris. I'm even more excited for the quarterfinals. Thank you, as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.